Hola, welcome to Made in Canada, an agricultural podcast. This is episode 7, Headline News. I'm Pedro Chamale. As you know by now, if you've been listening to this project, the lyrics for all the songs are verbatim, taken from sources like websites, media reports, and interviews. That made it pretty challenging for the composer, Michelle Cutler, to make musical sense of them. But she got there because, well, she is magnificent at what she does. The lyrics for Headline News are from the headlines of news stories and opinion pieces, which is why the tone is more direct and even more confrontational than some of the other songs in the cycle. And maybe it expresses some of the anger and frustration that grew in me as I delved deeper and deeper into the world of seasonal agricultural workers and the government program that brings them here and dumps them on the employers with little or no support. It certainly shows how most of us first hear of seasonal agricultural workers through reports of their deaths or abuse. Much of the support the workers get for healthcare, for translation services, for essential needs comes from volunteer organizations like Sanctuary Health in Vancouver and Rama in the Okanagan Valley. Some of it comes from non-governmental agencies with insecure funding like KCR in Kelowna. Of course, it's impossible for a government program to provide individual attention to thousands of workers. The problem as I see it is that the program deals with migrant workers as units of labor, as commodities. And the structures of the program keeps the workers separate from and invisible to the communities they live near. Mitch Ward is one of the outreach workers in BC who tries to fill the gaps. When you come in as as an outreach worker that has access to more resources or whatever, you, you get kind of looped into the community really quickly. And I, I think it's a really special, um, a special point to be because you can become someone who's just linking that existing uh, struggle up with resources in the community and, you know, able to provide translation, able to at times speak with employers when there's a fear of reprisal. And so it becomes anonymized what, who the complaint's coming from. And I think that that's a valuable thing. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I love it. And, you know, there's relationships that last years and years. Some of the cases will take two or three years to, to come to an end or they'll just go on indefinitely. So we, you know, you develop really close relationships with these women and men. And uh, I think it's, I, I'm honored to be a part of that, of that world and, uh, and supporting those, those workers. With your organization, what is the process like when a complaint comes in? So if you could kind of walk us through if someone were to come to you with a problem or an issue, uh, what kind of happens? You don't have to be specific about who or what it, what it is. It's just kind of. Mm-hmm. So I guess on a, each case is so specific uh, to the context. And my philosophy is, is always to kind of allow the worker to guide that process. And so the first thing I would do if a worker approached me is maybe discuss what the options were and then and then see see what direction they wanted to go. Sometimes, you know, they feel that the uh, the possible cost of repercussions would be too high to actually pursue something. It's more about just having someone in the loop with what's going on. And this this is about complaints specifically against employers. And then we would, if they wanted to to pursue it, I would find the the relevant agency. There's um, an open work permit for workers. So if it, it's a particularly grievous uh, situation of abuse, I would connect them with maybe an agency in Vancouver. There's an agency called Migrant Worker Center that has staff lawyers. And so 
they can help with uh, applying for that open work permit and they kind of follow that process start to finish and they've done it a number of times. The problem with that is, is that workers um, often have to wait two or three months to become approved for that. And so if they're in an abusive situation and they need to leave, there's no resources for them to stay in a hotel or, or to find another place or even to travel away from the farm. So um, there's this kind of like waiting period that is pretty tough for workers. And so even that will deter them from applying for the open work permit. So, you know, we do what we can to support them in those situations, connect them with other resources or with RAMA, we would actually call around to different allied community organizations and try to find housing for these workers. So then, yeah, it would just be a matter of, of keeping up with them on WhatsApp. So depending on, on where the case goes, it would be translating emails, doing three-way calls with government agencies. Often government agencies have kind of weak infrastructure for translation. And so we will do translation and yeah. And then just explaining the way that, that the system's working, the way that bureaucracy is kind of slowly moving towards something and, and then, you know, advocating, I guess, at a, at a government level for the decision to be made in favor of the workers. So, yeah, I, I guess that would follow a, a typical complaints process. I, with something like WorkSafe, you, you would do similar things, but you would work through WorkSafe to do translation and kind of follow the process through. And so you'll get workers texting at 10 o'clock at night after they're done being like, you know, how long do you think it's going to take? How much money do you think they'll be? They're able to ask you those like more specific questions that might be tough to bring up in a, in a formal meeting or something like that. So what's what's tough is that the as an outreach worker going on farm there's a, a significant amount of animosity right from the gate between employers and and the outreach worker and so making those connections with workers mm, can be tough in the sense that the employer sees you as a threat maybe like stirring up trouble or something like that amongst his workers and so but if you want to be led by workers and you want to build relationships with workers, you need to form a relationship with workers without the gatekeeping of an employer. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to, to navigate as, a, as an employer. And I think that's where a lot of the kind of uh, lack of efficacy in, in outreach programs before have been uh, is that they've felt that they had to go through employers to get to, to workers. And I think what that does is it sets up a... a, a an, reaching out but it exists within the, that uneven power dynamic and I think that kind of undermines any I don't know trust or something right out of the gate and so that complicated task of, of connecting with workers without uh, going through the employer is a huge part of, of casework and, and having successful casework I think. I could see how having someone who claims to be help but coming through the person who is you know controlling a lot of their daily lives or the source of the abuse to not to be trusted, right? Mm-hmm. No, totally. And I mean, already as an outsider, like we've talked to workers who, um, you know, have been coming for five or six or eight or 10 seasons and, and haven't spoken to a Canadian outside of a cashier at a grocery store or something like that. And so there's a, I don't know, a distrust or a reasonable distrust in, in you know, people coming on farm uh, that they would be connected to your employer. So you were really stressing that, you know, we are not affiliated with employers or uh, any other organization. We're just simply here to connect you with resources in the community and support if there's an issue that comes up. And it kind of rings about what you said about isolation being a big factor of this uh, experience here. And in your your history, what is it like 
of for communication between workers on different farms is that happening are they able to communicate do they even are they aware of each other yeah i mean definitely to some extent there's um there's a i don't know it kind of happens regionally so um workers will be coming back for a number of years and so uh, often the same workers come back to the same farm uh, for a number of years in a row but that doesn't always happen the the worker may be brought to Kamloops or Kelowna one year and then the next year they'll end up in Quebec and so yeah those workers are friends from working in previous seasons and so they're communicating back and forth and then within kind of regions there's also transfers so especially in the Okanagan uh, a worker that is working in cherries might be transferred to an apple orchard or grapes or something like that in the in the fall Um, and so there's some kind of flow between farms and that encourages a wider community as well but I think problematically there's some efforts by some employers to to dissuade communication between workers and so we'll see especially kind of divided along nationality um like jamaican workers discouraged from speaking with mexican workers and mexican workers discouraged from speaking with jamaican workers and they'll be housed separately and i don't know uh, from the outside it appears to be an attempt to break up any sort of unity as workers so yeah that's a a tactic that we see fairly often but yeah i think the the communication is there and like i said especially on farm like some of these farms are quite big with with 200 workers and and workers are looking out for each other and doing the best that they can with what they have to to keep everyone safe and and community and there's great you know little parties or whatever for mexican independence day or or whatever people have events and they you know they there's a community which is is really important i think Awesome. That, yeah. Making community where we go. <laughs> yeah. Story of my career. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this kind of loops to that um, question of, you know, they're making, they're communicating with each other, there's transfers and things. But when they arrive here, what is that process like? Are you, as your organization, are you like an intermediary? Does everyone have to check in with you? Are you given a list of like, here's the farms with workers on it? Or is it really you, uh, like, boots on the ground going make like going to farms to see if there actually are workers there yeah no there's no list that i mean that i know of um and i think there there's some government effort to work on that but i think that's a problem all the way to the top but the process for us is to basically go around to farms and ask if they have workers and so that requires finding the farms uh, and then going on to these these properties and, and seeing if there's workers and that is long days like you know up to 300 kilometers a day of driving around trying to just look for farms and here it's particularly difficult because you don't always know whether there's a farm at the end of the road or not and so in the Okanagan you can tell because it's orchards and so you would go to an orchard and check um, and often if there was like kind of shabby looking housing you would know that that's worker housing and so that's worth checking on uh, and so you would go in and see if there was workers and so that that's the way that you kind of can build a list and a map within your own territory to figure out how many workers there are and where there's workers there's some federal lists about like approved lmias and that sometimes helps is you know if you can get some old past years list of lmias you can figure out where people potentially could be and and that's somewhat helpful but it's really incomplete and you know kind of all over the place so really the best way to find like real on the ground information is to just go to each farm and and ask if there are workers here could you explain lmia for folks listening (laughs) sure uh it's a labor market impact assessment so it's uh 
it's a process where an employer who wants to hire temporary foreign workers, they have to prove that there is no Canadian that wants to do it or very few Canadians that want to do it or that are have the skills to do it. And so um, that typically involves advertising the job publicly for three weeks or something like that. And then they show that they've received very few responses and then the government will approve their LMIA. And so that's how they can, that's how they kind of justify bringing in workers from outside the country. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, with COVID, it was weird this year because that, that process slowed down faster than the, the work permit process. And so we had a number of workers who were denied extensions, like they needed to stay in Canada because of the COVID lockdown in March. Um, and so they, maybe their permit expired and then their employer applied for another LMIA, but that process was taking a really long time. And so their extension was denied but they were still working in Canada. So they ended up having to be under implied status until that whole process was started again and then eventually approved. But it caused a huge headache for people because it's just another layer of, of bureaucracy that has to be approved for their for their status to be confirmed in Canada. In your experience when you're reaching out to these workers and you finally get to speak to them, what is the extent of the understanding that workers are having of this program when they arrive here? There's an understanding that uh, that there's work that needs to be done. I think it, it varies, obviously. Like I don't, I don't know. If I can speak to exactly what what workers think, but I think the overarching theme is that um, you know these are jobs that Canadians don't don't want to do, uh, and so that's why workers have been brought to to Canada to do that work. And there's. Uh, varying levels of concern around the vulnerability of, of their status in the country when they arrive. Yeah, knowing that it's it's unjust, it's fundamentally unjust that Canada doesn't offer permanent residency to these workers who kind of make up the backbone of their agricultural sector. And so, yeah, I, I don't know, I would say it's a, it's a mix of, of being, you know, excited to be able to do the work, but also feeling the the impact of that structural power imbalance that exists uh, as temporary workers in the country. And so I'll ask you to speak about your region. How aware are people in your region of this program and of the workers? Oh, of, of like just in the general community, I would say very, very unknowing of the, of the fact that there's workers here. Uh, it's a little bit more visible in the Okanagan, but in the Thompson Nicola where I am, I think the only people that know that the workers are even here are, you know, a couple bank tellers and, uh, you know, maybe some of the grocery stores that are really close to the workers. But I, I, I think there's a very, very limited understanding of what what they're here for or how they're here or, or whatever. And uh, I mean, there's a perception amongst some for sure that there's like undocumented workers or, yeah, when I was calling around to figure out where workers were last spring, I had a number of people tell me that like, oh, we don't hire illegals. And the, uh, yeah, I think there's this like old, wild west kind of attitude in some of the smaller places around here that uh, it's just that they shouldn't be here or something like that so yeah. these invisible workers who are the cornerstone of our food system often lose more than they bargain for when they come to canada in search of higher wages our friend Byron Cruz is one of the activists who advocates for workers under the auspices of the BC Federation of Labour. 
he has a grasp of the personal cost to individuals caught in a larger international picture of abuse. When the first workers arrived to Delta or London, and they were going to future shop, they were going to Safeway, they were going to these places, there was always the security guy following them. And they saw, oh, these guys like well, small guys. Uh, they don't look from here, <laughs> right? And they were, they were following them in the store and things like that, and like suspiciously, right? Four or five years later, these stores have Spanish-speaking people there, right? It's like <laughs> they became, oh, there is money, there is economy going on. These people are causing it, like economy are paying taxes, are buying from here. Are, these are, there are small towns in Delta, in, in, in Chilliwack, in, uh, in Hawesford, where the economy are the migrant workers right now. That is the economy. Economy moves things, right? Then, but there's not much awareness about their suffering. It's like, who will take the time to ask my friends what's going on when they go back home, right? Do they still have a family? Like, we know workers who have been here decades, then without the right for a family reunification. Can their families come and visit them? No, right? And then many workers will find out that they don't have a family anymore when they go back to the country. Their kids don't recognize them anymore. The family was it's separated and they, they keep coming every year because the economy is so bad there too but they lose their families definitely i would say there is a period of one two years that the family can keep up after that it's so hard it's so hard they will lose their family definitely and uh, female workers that come to work here and after two years they get a letter from the court system in Guatemala, Mexico. Oh, you abandoned your family. You didn't abandon your family. You get to work and support the family, but there is suddenly a, the guy over there saying, oh, abandonment. Right? And then sometimes it's a pressure for, oh, it's a letter of the court system, but what is behind that? Send me more money. <laughs> it is... Oh, it's or there is also this worker in Chilliwack, I was I can't remember, that went by with a heart attack to the hospital. He was getting many calls from, uh, you know, the area of Kitchen, Guatemala. Yeah, then extortions, like getting phone calls from Kitchen say, okay, you give us this quantity of money or we kill your family. We know that you are working in Canada and we will kill your family if you don't. Then it's hard. So many workers have been receiving extortion. And where do you go? You go to the police here? They are not going to solve that situation. You go to the police in Guatemala, the police might start extortioning you. And it's like, there is no winning. No winning on this situation. It's like, and uh, that's when I say, this program, it's, uh, the formula for this program doesn't work, I don't know. Like, you go, you select a couple people from a small village in Guatemala, 
someone in the village will know that you came to Canada and the poverty going on there is then it causes extortions causes uh, lots of uh, lots of problems and uh, and I, I always have the feeling that the agricultural stream is made to bring more vulnerable workers especially workers from places there where there is a, a war on droves like or there was a civil war for 30 something years like Guatemala and uh, then workers might be afraid of talking and the poverty is so hard that if you come here to work you have to work and uh, or if you come from Honduras where you know that the the government is really corrupted and also as part of the the cartels and you basically came to work here not only because you need to survive and you need to support your family, but you were also displaced. There is a displacement going on, and um, same thing in Guatemala, right? You were displaced in order to have the Canadian mining companies to settle there, right? Or you have the displacement from Honduras because now there is a desire to displace you in order to set up private cities. Like these private cities in Honduras, it's a new experiment. And there are a few already, like the, the Honduran constitution doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with these private cities. These private cities have been sold to United States uh, corporations. And then they decide who are citizens of those private <laughs> cities. And these are places where people have been displaced. When we say, oh, all these Cold caravans coming from Honduras, the displacement so hard, but the displacement of these areas are in order to create these private cities. So that's where some of the anger and frustration underneath headlines anthem comes from. Before we hear the whole song, let's eavesdrop on the conversation between me and composer Michelle Cutler as we talked about the creation of this song over the last couple of years. On to the next song. Number seven. Here we go. Almost there. Yeah. Almost oh, yeah. We're doing yeah. good. Uh, seven is Headlines Anthem. Headlines. This, again, is another one that was originated in Banff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The cheap eats cheap labor hag at the end is something that I think was really an early key in terms of us unlocking what this show was. It's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting song. It, it, it uh, stylistically, I don't know. I, it was again. Yeah. Cause in Banff, I was listening to a lot of, of those, those bands on the playlist. And I think I was getting some inspiration from them in terms of that sort of instrumental intro going. And then the middle section, which is kind of wild that goes like, uh, between three, four, and four, four time, was mostly because the words were hard to get in any other auditor general. What is it? Auditor, auditor general? general finds oversight. finds oversight oversight enforcement problems of foreign worker programs. Workers say they're victims of abuse, fear, deportation. So, like, just put that into into music. Uh, <laughs> There's a task for you. Go out uh, now. So, I, I think that the the sort of intense middle section was a, a like we I had to do that because I didn't know how else to use the lyrics but now it's like one of my favorite things it, I think it's really cool like we just sort of 
like sorry to the all the band and the singers who had to figure it out but it's it's not that complex it's just sort of tricky and I don't know it's just like again it's yeah it's a bunch of headlines it's a bunch of stuff that that happened that was written about and yeah um, and it's that big bold text at the top of an article or something you probably scrolled through or saw and a lot of times people who have come to a showing or have heard something and are going, oh yeah, I've seen seen things of this and, and I'm guilty of it too of, of of subjects being like, oh yeah, I think I read something about that when I've really just like read the headline. Mm-hmm. I remember I remember specifically naming this song Headlines Anthem. Hopefully that would kind of influence your writing of mm-hmm. like what it would be and then when Cheap Eat Cheap Labor came, I was like, oh yeah, it did kind of because that's yeah. the kind of anthem it leaves you with that people who have heard the song walk out and they're like, oh, cheap eats, cheap labor. Yeah. And they're like bobbing their heads and going, oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It really has that, that sort of contrasting things. Knowing that you've gone from a demo to the workshop version of this song Mm -hmm. and then now to the album version you're about to hear. What's that journey for this song been like? Knowing that it's kind of stayed it pretty yeah, similar, it hasn't but changed very as you've much. added more, I guess. Yeah, like we uh, it got a lot faster. We added the trumpet, which again, we're like, how do we ever not have the trumpet? But honestly, this one really has stayed. Like, I feel like it was one of the ones that sort of, we got it quickly and that kind of was it. Like we have the the line of temporary worker dies, which is sort of that, that moment in the middle, which we found during the EP, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we like that and the freak accident that sort of again it's like really haunting actually when you think about it but I don't know this one it really hasn't it hasn't shifted it's like pretty similar mm-hmm. uh, it's just I think it's gotten better like we've sort of finessed it and tweaked it and I, I really like like where the guitar is now and where the percussion is now but um yeah I think from hearing the demo this was one I was able to imagine the final version I yeah think, you know not having the kind of training you have in, in orchestration and just being able to imagine music. Like yeah. I can imagine maybe spatial relationship of actors and stuff sure, yeah. um, or set and stuff like that. This one I hear, I remember hearing the demo and going, Oh, okay. I can hear what this is going to be. Yeah. And I remember being in Banff and, and yeah, again, it's like another key that turned mm-hmm. and unlocked. And this one, I think we had the hardest time placing on the album. This one shifted from like the yeah. B, the A side to the B side to the, yeah. after this song to this. And it was more like, it could start the album. It could be near the end and it's more into the end now, or it could yeah. be the middle. It could have ended the, ended the things too. Uh, if the songs were different. Yeah. Yeah, um, totally. And I think that just kind of, for me, it's this, like the, the way this song kind of transforms throughout, like it starts off in a more dramatic fashion with the flourishes yeah. of the violin and the trumpet and then moves into that catchy, catchy hook. <laughs> so catchy, which I, I quite enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Enjoy Headlines Anthem. I mean, if you want to enjoy it, you could not enjoy it. Or, I don't know, yeah.
deserve better. The shame, the shame, the shame, the shame. Cheap eats, cheap labor. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll dig into a specific event that got the city of Vancouver talking about migrant workers for a few days in 2019. Until next time, my friends, take care. Seven migrant workers arrested at Hastings Racecourse late last month have all voluntarily returned to their home country. Some are Mexican citizens, but as CTV's Ben Milger reports, advocates say there's a good reason those workers should be granted permission to come back. Made in Canada, an agricultural podcast was written and narrated by me, Pedro Chamale. It is edited and co-produced by Kathleen Flaherty and is produced by Derek Chan and Howard Dye of Rice and Beans Theatre. Spanish translation by our Spanish dramaturg, Daniela Atencia. Thanks to Playwrights Theatre Centre and to today's guests, Mitch Ward, Byron Cruz, and Michelle Cutler. Thank you to all the funders and donors who made the song cycle possible. The Canada Council for the Arts the BC Arts Council, the Province of British Columbia, and the City of Vancouver. You can find out more about the podcast and Made in Canada, an agricultural song cycle, or support us and purchase the album at micsongcycle.ca. That's micsongcycle.ca. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.